Amen, what a great time of celebration. If you will welcome our Lexington campus, those of you listening online, we're thrilled to have you with us. And uh, what a great reminder. You know, we're here to honor and worship, adore the one who came to this earth for us. What a celebration. I want to take a moment to thank our team once again. Lexington, thank your team over there, Sam and the team, uh, Ernesto and the team here. What a great time of celebration this morning. So appreciate the work they put into. Uh, and we had a special treat here at Park Avenue. We had our uh, praise choir, which is always a highlight. It's so, so exciting. If you want to take your Bibles out with me and turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there is one of the seat back in front of you. If you turn with us to page 857, Luke chapter 2. As always, if you're here, if you're Lexington, uh, and you don't have a Bible in your home, take that with you as a gift from our church. Do you want to make sure that you have a copy of God's? We're going to walk right through uh, the Christmas story here this morning. We want to make sure that you have a copy of God's Word. You can study and know God. He's revealed Himself to us. As you turn there, I want to highlight a couple things. I just want to say a big thank you to uh, Dar Roderick, Darlene Roderick, who oversees our adopted child and our missions. And thank you to all of you that helped make Adopt a Child a success. We gave out 1,075 gifts to children around this community that are in need. Uh, as Crossroads, we gave out 550 of those personally, and then we were the hub of all the others. And so thank you. I know many of you came for hours upon hours to serve. Some of you showed up for those giving days. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your faithfulness to, to reach out and love our city well. Our city is better because of that. Kids are going to be encouraged because of that, and uh, we had so many stories, by the way, of conversations, of prayers, uh, of interactions with people about Christ as a result of them coming into our, our building, be able to give them these gifts. So thank you for your faithfulness, and, and uh, when you see Darlene Roderick, make sure you give her a big hug and say thank you for her work. Uh, it is like a well-oiled machine. Uh, you would think that would be chaotic. It is not. It is well-oiled machine. Thank you, Darlene, for your leadership in that. Also, I wanted to mention, uh, next week kicks off, next Saturday night, kicks off our Christmas at Crossroads Services. We have six services for you to be able to attend, but also to be able to invite someone with you. Inside your program, you will find a little card. Let me ask you this. How many of you, Lexington here, how many of you have given out one of these cards? Anybody? Just raise your hand. All right, that's not enough. It's not enough. I threw the gauntlet down two weeks ago and said, I am going to hand out 100 of these cards. I've given out 82 of them. I will, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now, now come on, you guys are more competitive than that, Ohio State Buckeyes. You guys aren't satisfied with cheering for somebody else to win, are you? Get these cards, give them out. By the way, we've given out 4,000 of these. We know that because we, we don't have many left. And so you have one in your program. We're asking you to hand out one of these. Invite somebody with you. We have planned those services to be an outreach to people that come. We believe wholeheartedly that lives will be changed. We have been praying about that. We have planned the service to be a straightforward gospel presentation of what Christmas means. And so we hope you'll take these and hand them out and invite somebody. Invite somebody. And uh, we would love to make sure we have six services so it's easy for people to make it and attend. We want to see lives change with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we hope you'll invite someone to join you. Then we kick off in the new year. And I want to let you know about some exciting things as we enter to the new year. Um, and, and here we come to the end of year. This is always a time as a church we look at it and say it would be really good for us to finish strong financially. And so I want to ask you, if you're looking for somewhere to give at the end of the year, uh, would you consider giving to Crossroads? We have taken some big leaps of faith 
faith this past year. We launched our Lexington campus. That was unexpected. We were in the midst of a campaign, and we, were not, we didn't know what God's plan was for that. And so we're thankful for Lexington, uh, but what we, we need to fund that and continue to fund that. We took some risk on some people that we added, some ministries that we started. Uh, our city center, which is really flourishing, all of that is based upon donations. And so if you're willing to give, would you give here at the end of the year to the general fund? It would help us to be able to finish strong. If you don't give regularly, this is the time to jump on board. Jump on board for the end of the year giving. Uh, you can automate that giving to make it easy for you, but we would love uh, to be able to have the privilege of using our funds together to be able to see uh, God's gospel go forward in this community and around the world. We are a church that leads people to the truth that transformed lives in North Central Ohio and around the world. So hope you, hope you will give as we come to the end of the year. And then also I want to mention, as we enter the new year, some exciting things. January 11th to 12th is our year in review. This is where we take a moment to celebrate all that God has done. Uh, if you didn't know this, we were listed as the 67th fastest growing church in America this past year, which is pretty exciting. We'll talk about that in the new year. Celebrate that. We'll also be talking about our Vision 2020 campaign. We'll be having a special time during that service where we'll be celebrating some updated news about this building, our mortgage of this building. So you do not want to miss January 11th and 12th. By the way, we're going to be doing a Q&A, that, that service. So you get a chance to send in questions. We'll give you some information in the weeks to come and you can hear that question answered about our church, about the vision, about where we're headed. And so myself and our elder chairman, Mike Sloan, we're going to answer some of your questions that you might have about us. So we're looking forward to that service. And then in the beginning of February, we're kicking off a series that will launch into uh, a new book that I'm writing called Dream Killer, and it's the story of Joseph. And so we're excited in February. We have some small groups that are going to be wrapped into that, and so we hope you'll be here in February. We're excited about that series as we walk through the story of Joseph called Dream Killer, and we believe God's going to use that greatly. So we're excited about the new year. It's hard to believe another year has passed. Uh, Luke chapter 2 together. Have you ever had a moment... Maybe in Christmas, maybe it's another thing that you received, a gift that you, you got, and it wasn't quite what you expected. And while you're grateful for the gift, you feel a bit disappointed. You know, when I think of the Christmas season, I can't about to think, uh, for us, it's a, a multifaceted celebration. Because not only is it Christmas, which is, of course, the, the birth of Christ, but it's also a time we celebrate when Allison and I, my wife and I, got engaged. We got in, engaged 23 years ago on Christmas Day. And so we celebrate that. And so we kind of have this dual celebration. I remember, remember when we got engaged on Christmas Day and how it kind of worked in our family was uh, we were both college students and uh, I had already talked to her parents. And the plan was is that we were going to go visit my family and stay with my family until Christmas Day. And then we were going to drive to meet Allison's family. Uh, her mom and dad live in the DC, Washington, D.C. area, but they all go to Ohio for Christmas, and they went to Mentor, Ohio, where her family is, and her grandparents and aunts and uncles, and so our plan was to spend Christmas morning with my, my mom and my family, and then travel to Ohio here and spend Christmas. By the way, it's kind of funny. My, my wife's family from the Washington, D.C. area, when they vacation, they vacation to Ohio. <laughs> now, yeah, everybody says, Why? Well, vacation in Ohio, that's what they did because that's where family was. And so uh, for Christmas, we were going to drive up there. So here I was, it was a perfect setting, and Allison was like, hey, if you ever propose to me, I would love for it to be in front of family. So I decided that Christmas morning I was going to propose to her. And so uh, we got up, my family was there, and uh, we had breakfast together, and then we began to open gifts. Well, there was this one gift that Allison really wanted. Uh, she wanted these, they were, they were these canisters, ceramic canisters that had apples on them. 
And I, I didn't know it then, but it was really a hint where she was saying, I want you to buy me these kitchen canisters so that we will be married one day and have a house together, right? That's what she was planning. She was, she was baiting me, and I didn't see it. So I decided to buy her these beautiful canisters that she wanted to put things in. And so I put them in a box, I wrapped them all up, and she opened that gift, this gift that she wanted, on Christmas morning. Now, i got to tell you, when she opened them, my wife is very gracious, and so I saw a heart of gratitude, I saw eyes of, of, of thanksgiving, but i got to be honest, I know her, right? We were students together, we went to class together, we were spending a lot of time together, we had gotten to this point to be engaged. I could sense in her disappointment. She didn't want these canisters. She wanted me to propose to her, and I knew it. And the moment I looked into her eyes when she opened those things, and she was like, oh, these are what I wanted. But I could tell she wanted something more. I could tell that she was di greatly disappointed. And it was in that moment when I saw her eyes, and I could tell she was trying to be kind, but she really wanted something deeper. It was in that moment that I knew I had her. I got her. And so I grabbed the flowers behind the Christmas tree, and I got down on one knee, and I said, roses are red, violets are blue. When I think of you, I go, woo-hoo. And, <laughs> and I said, will you marry me? And of course, she, she would tears and cried, and we, we hugged. And, and right there, my mom was there. We got to celebrate together. Then we drove to Ohio and celebrated with her family that we were engaged. You know, isn't that true of life sometimes? Like, you get something, and you wonder, is this it? Is this all there is? Isn't there something more? Isn't there something deeper? And by the way, this can happen as well in our Christian faith. Right? We can come to Christ and we understand the, the glamour of the cross and the, the, the beauty of the resurrection and the, uh, the work that Christ has done to save us. And then slowly over time, it can kind of become ho-hum. It can, it can kind of become normal. It can kind of lose its luster and we wonder, is this all it is? Is this what it means to live a Christian life? Is this what it means to walk with Christ? Is this all there is? And the gap between our expectation and our experience continues to widen. Can I tell you, that's exactly where we find the Christmas story. It's in a season like that. The Christmas story is wrought with this truth. They were in a season that we would call the already but not yet, just as we are. The already that, that they had these prophets who had prophesied that Christ would come, and yet the not yet because the Messiah had not come. He had not come yet. And was God delaying or was God ignoring his rules or was God not even there? If you and I, we live in the, in the land of the already, and but, not, but not yet. God came to earth. He died on a cross. He rose again, and yet he's not yet come again and fully consummated his work. And so we're left in the land of the already, but not yet. And slowly we can begin to wonder and fade away from the truth of what God did for us when he came as a baby in a manger, in the flesh, God in the flesh. Take a look with me, Luke chapter 2, and we're going to dive in together. For 400 years, God had been silent. God prophesied or, or gave his truth, revealed himself through the prophets. For 400 years, there had been silence. No voice of God, no prophet prophesying. And all of a sudden, an angel shows up to, to Mary and says, you're going to be with child, but it's not just any child. His name's going to be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And here we pick up the story, Luke chapter 2. It says in verse 1, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. 
And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Now I want to confess to you as we dive into this text, we're going to be looking at this a little bit differently. Uh, normally here we walk right through a text and we glean from that text, it, we expose the text and exegete the text, but this morning we're going to kind of look at this topically. Now it's Christmas, so we kind of have some leniency, but I want to look at the characters, the groups of people, and what they were doing or what they were experiencing the night before Christmas. So I've titled this, and I never really share the titles of sermons, we just put those in there, but, but this, is, this is called, um, What the Night Before Christmas Tells Us About Life. We're going to look at these groups of people, and it's, it's, it's interesting to see what this story really tells us about life. So it's going to be a little bit different this morning as we read this text. Luke chapter 2, what we find first is a group in Rome. We find a little bit of Roman history. So this is number one. We call it oblivious in Rome. Oblivious in Rome. Luke makes a very interesting point for us here in Luke chapter 2 verse 1 to give us a biblical context as to when Jesus had come. And notice what he says. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So this is a census. They're having a worldwide census, an empire census. Verse 2, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now if you look this up, there's some debate about when this was. Uh, and the reason for that is because Quirinius had multiple censuses. Notice Luke says it's the first one. So we got some information here to, to put context to when Jesus actually came. And what it tells us is that Rome was oblivious to this. Rome wasn't focused on this coming one. Rome was too busy wrapped in themselves. Now we get some information here. First of all, we have Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was probably one of the most powerful emperors that ever existed. Uh, most people don't know that because when you think of the most powerful emperors in Roman history, the first one that comes to mind probably is Julius Caesar, right? You probably have heard of that name, Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was the, the, the great uncle, uh, uh, the grand uncle of Caesar Augustus. He was the great uncle of Caesar Augustus, but he wasn't as powerful as Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus reigned for 41 years, and, and he led what was called in Latin the Pax. Pax Romana. That means the peace of Rome. Caesar Augustus was the one that, that brought peace to the Roman Empire in a way that no other emperor did. Caesar Augustus was an amazing leader. And, and, the, and the empire was under peace because of his reign. Uh, this Roman peace spread all throughout the Mediterranean world. We're also told this is when Quirinius was governor of Syria. What would happen in that day is when they would take a census, they would do it by sections of areas. And so this area of Jerusalem was, or, or uh, of Judea, was wrapped or connected to Syria. And so they would do it all together. And so they would do it throughout the empire at different times. It wasn't just like one big census. It was periods of censuses that they would be taking throughout the world. By the way, next year is a census. Censuses are important, aren't they? Censuses give indication of people. And people then in our world brings, brings opportunity. There's finances that are attached to censuses. There's, uh, there's community development that's atta attached to censuses. So censuses are very important. But for the Roman Empire, it wasn't to help the people. The Roman Empire took the census out of power. Why? Because what they wanted everybody to know was how great of an empire they were. What they wanted everybody to know was, listen, if you mess with us, here's all the people that we have. And so it was meant to elicit fear. It was meant to take control. It, it was meant to bring a little bit of trepidation 
to the Roman Empire. They then used those censuses to create taxes. And Caesar Augustus actually built the tax system by the way that you and I experience today in our country. If you didn't know this, our government is based upon Roman rule. And so there's a lot of connections when you read the story that we get in our day. Even our buildings in our nation's capital are built after Rome. There's a reason for that. There's a reason why we follow this. Now, I want to look at this for a moment. Rome was oblivious. The reason were there were really three characteristics that Rome demonstrated. Number one, they were inwardly focused. Rome was inwardly focused. They had no clue of their need for a king. They weren't expecting a king. They didn't care about a king. They, they knew that there were prophets in the Old, the Old Testament. They didn't care about those. They were the almighty. They were the powerful empire of the day. They were inwardly focused. They only saw themselves. They had money. They had culture. They had recreation. And they had restaurants. In fact, the restaurant Athens, Greece, Athens, Greek, started in the Roman Empire. I'm just kidding. If you know history, <laughs> some of you guys, you guys are really gullible today. I mean, you've, in Roman history, the Romans took over for the Greeks, and so they took. If you've never been to Athens, Greek, Greek food, man, you, you need to stop there. It's amazing food. It's a great restaurant. Um, that's what they had there. They had restaurants. I mean, they had everything: culture, libraries. They had everything. They, they were inwardly focused. They didn't need anything. They didn't need any help. They didn't need anything exterior. They needed profits. They had it all figured out. Secondly, not only were they inwardly focused, they were self-made. They believed that they had everything they needed. Remember the old saying by Burger King, do it my way? The song by Frank Sinatra? That's them. They were like, listen, this is our way. We have built the most advanced culture, the biggest military. We were up to date with trends and advertisements. They were up to date on social media as well with chisels and stones. I mean, they were the most advanced society in history. They were self-made. When you think you have already have what you need the most and you have a leader that you're willing to die for or live for, you think you're happy. And so here they are, they're self-made, they believe they're happy, there's nothing to look for, everything is going well, the, the, the empire's at peace, inwardly focused, self-made, and they were politically motivated. Uh, by the way, notice verse 3, this gives us this in inclination, it says, and all went to be registered, each to his own town, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. What that tells us is that this was a politically motivated scheme that they had set up. By the way, what we read in verse 3, most scholars believe, is, is Rome throwing a bone, if I can call it that, throwing a good gesture to the Jewish people. Why? Because they would have just had everybody go to their own town. They would have set up an office. They would have registered them. They would have then told them how much taxes they owe. This is the way it would have been. But they threw a, a kind gesture to the Jews because the Jews wanted people to return to their tribe. The Jews wanted people to remember where they came from, and so they wanted people to return where they were from. And so it seems that here's a political move where the Romans say, okay, let, go ahead and return to your hometowns. What does it matter? Um, we're still going to get our census, and we're still going to get money. And so we find that Joseph must return to this little podunk town called Bethlehem, where David was originally from. David was, well, the city of David was Jerusalem, and so this was just some small little town that they had to go back to. There was a lot of politically motivated schemes in that day. By the way, does that sound familiar in our day? It's very similar. 
inwardly focused, self-made, politically motivated. I had the privilege this past week of representing Crossroads. I went down and opened at the, the session at the State House. A great honor to be there. You know what's funny is you walk into that building, by the way, it's Roman architecture. You walk into that building and you just feel the politics. Like every glance, you're wondering, is that a deal being made? Every look, every shake of the hand, you wonder, what's the motivation? It, you just feel the politics. You don't, by the way, have to be in politics to feel that, do you? You know that if you have a family. There's politics in families, aren't there? We're going to experience that sometimes at Christmas when we gather together. There's politics in the way you treat people, in the way right, people interact. There's politics in our workplaces, people that are going after the jobs that we want to have or that we have. Right? There's politics everywhere. We live politically motivated, looking out for us, inwardly focused, self-made in our attempts. Here's the point. While Rome was busy making history... While Rome was focused on their own history, God was revealing his story of redemption in the midst, and they were oblivious. While Rome was going after making their history, God was writing a story of redemption, and Rome was unaware. See, the Roman world needed what only this baby could provide. The Roman world needed what only this child, this baby, this man who would die on a cross and rise again, they needed it what he would bring. How easy is it for us to be so familiar with this story that we miss the wonder and magnitude of that moment? How easy, easy is it for us to be so overshadowed with life that we become oblivious to the depth of the story of Jesus coming? Think about this for a moment. God came in baby. God came in the form of a baby, veiled himself behind human flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He humbled himself as a man. Think about that for a moment. The God of all, the creator of all, the God of the universe, the one who spoke the stars into place, the one who calls them by name, becomes a baby forgotten about. Rome was oblivious. And how easy it for, is it for us in this Christmas season to miss the wonder and majesty, the awe and amazement of the fact that Christ had come. N number two, notice verse seven. It says, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Number two, busy in Bethlehem. We have oblivious in Rome. We have busy in Bethlehem. Luke makes this very interesting statement, a very small little statement that says there was no room for them, no place for them in the end. You would think of all places for this baby to be born, all places for God to come, Rome would be the spot. I mean, Rome was the hub of the world. It was the centerpiece. It was the capital. Instead, it's this little blip on the map called Bethlehem, that God comes to this earth. Bethlehem was a small town, normally less than 1,000 residents, but on this moment, because of a census, because Rome was so oblivious to this king that was to come, they had this census, right? And now the streets of Bethlehem would be crowded. The houses would be overbooked. The, the economic possibilities had increased. So the people were setting up stores and shops and trying to make a little extra money because everybody was going back to their hometown. All of a sudden, we find a busy city where it would be normally pretty calm and bright. And Luke tells us, is in this moment, as they come to the city, there was no room for Mary and Joseph and this baby. Now, a little background. 
The word here, N, isn't really the way we think about it. When we think of an N, we think, well, this is the picture, right? We have this image. We've seen these shows where it's like a, a, it's like a, a Holiday Inn Express, a Motel 6, and you go up and knock on the door, and the innkeeper comes and goes, no room, and shuts the door. That's what we have this image of. That's not how it happened. In fact, archaeologists have found houses in Bethlehem, and much of Bethlehem is, is centered or connected to a, a rock formation behind it. And so houses would be built up, and then they would have behind them, in the caves and crevices of these rocks, they would put their prized animals. Why? To protect them. And so the image of this, by the way, the word in here is the same word that's used later on when Jesus gathers his disciples in the upper room. This actually wasn't an inn like we think about. It was actually a guest room or a guest house. And so there would be an owner of a home who opened up a special room he would have so that people could stay there. If you ever traveled around the world and you ever heard of a hostel, that's the image I get for this. A hostel would be uh, kind of a cheap place to live, but you live in kind of a community while you're there. It was, it was, it, this is the image, right? They would have a room, and everybody could stay there. Now you have a nine-month pregnant woman who's about ready to give birth. You can't put her in a room with everybody else. There needs to be a little privacy. And so uh, I don't think you're the innkeeper or the house owner. He, he wasn't necessarily hostile. He wasn't unsympathetic. He was just busy. I mean, he looked at his house that was filled it's filled to the brim. And he says, hey, I know you're pregnant. I want to put you in a safe place, but I've got tons of people here. Can I offer you the cave in the back? And usually the stall would be connected to the house. So we have this image that this innkeeper, this house owner, sent them like 10 miles away in the middle of nowhere. No, it's probably right connected to the house. But that's all he had available because of the busyness, the busyness of this moment. And Luke wants us to understand this is how God came. There was no room. The hustle and bustle of life was taking place. The taxation and census was overwhelming. Can I say it's the same for us, isn't it? We can become so busy and distracted. We have so many things that are attempting to steal our attention at all times that we miss what's right in front of us. I remember years ago, I, I was flying, uh, taking this flight, and there was uh, the opportunity to be able to watch TV or TV shows, and so one of the things I clicked on on the screen was this show called Brain Games. Ever seen that show, Brain Games? Basically, it, it, it talks about the psychology of people and how we think and tricks that our minds play, and uh, one of the episodes had this moment where they were trying to show how we get distracted, and so they had a team, a basketball team, and they were passing basketballs back and forth, and they said, we want you to count how many times they pass the ball. And so you're watching and you're counting one, two, three, four, five. And then all of a sudden, you don't see it until they stop it and go in slow-mo. And they show you that while you're counting the basketballs, you have no clue that there's a clown juggling that walks behind them. But you never see it. And when they slow it down and say, hey, you probably missed what, what this was really about. You were so busy counting passes that you missed this clown that's juggling walking behind it. How true is that of us? We can get so busy with life that we miss what God is doing right in front of us, what God did 2,000 years ago. Why? Because we have an explosion of choices now. We have an explosion of decisions. Think about this. There's an explosion of choices. Uh, it used to be in my day, when you played sports, there was only one sport per season. You play that sport or you didn't play that sport. Young people, students here, you probably don't realize this, but uh, in my day, we had cable. I didn't have cable. I kind of grew up a little bit poor. But when you wanted to change a TV station, you actually had to 
take off the feed trough, put down the recliner, and you had to get up and go over to the TV and turn the knob. If you wanted to change the channel, it was horrendous. <laughs> like now, literally, we can say right to our remote, show ESPN, and it will immediately turn there. You don't even have to get up. Man, you can have a drink in the hand, uh, uh, some chips in your hand, and you can speak into existence the channel you want. We didn't have that. It used to be you had to get up and change the channel, and it wouldn't dare be a commercial on, because then you're waiting to see, is this something I want to watch? And so if the commercial was on, you were stuck. You were standing. Uh, think about the, the explosion of choices. I mean, today, Amazon has made the whole world one one great giant Turkish bazaar. You can get everything you need, everything you want on Amazon. In fact, this Christmas, our boys are a little bit older now. We ordered everything online, and it started showing up at the house. And the boys are just like, can we go ahead and put this thing together? Can we go ahead and start using it? We don't care. I mean, this is the world we live in, right, where packages are delivered. I mean, we live in a world where there are more activities to be in. Think about this. Students, you get this, right? You can play in an athletic sporting event in one moment and then go home to your house and enter into another event online where you're inter- engaging with your friends and playing a video game. You can be engaged constantly. Think about it. We have this explosion of choices. By the way, a little side note. <clears throat> I thought this was an interesting study uh, done by a Columbia, Columbia University pre- uh, a professor. Her, her, her name was... Um, uh, Shaheen Iyengar. And what she did is she studies psychology. And she studies specifically psychology as it relates to choice. And so she did an experiment. She set up in a grocery store a table with 24 different jams and jellies. And she found that, that 50% of the people that entered the store would taste one of the jams and jellies. She then went back in the store and set up a table of six jams and jellies. And she found that only 30% of the people actually would try the jams and jellies when there are only six options. Now where the study gets interesting is that she found that of those who took the samples of the 24 jams and jellies, only 3% of them actually bought jam or jellies. But the six flavors they had of jams and jellies, they found that 30% of the people actually bought it. Think about that for a moment. Her point in this whole theory that she she assimilated was that choice is an appealing theory, but it's actually debilitating to us. The more choices we have, we actually don't pick better. We actually pick less. It actually paralyzes us. Why? Because an explosion of choices leads to an erosion of boundaries. All of a sudden, we have no boundaries. We can't say no to anything. We overcommit, yet we don't commit to the right things, and then we're stuck with a multiplication of artificial necessities that lead to unbearable pressure in an unsustainable pace. And this has led to two great myths. I just want to highlight these for a moment. Two great myths. First of all, there's a myth that says busy equals important. I'm busy. That's the mantra of the day. I'm busy. Man, there's tons of people in the room. There's tons of people in the, right? I'm busy. We have this idea that busy equals important. Now, granted, many of you probably get emails and texts, and you got to deal with those. I know I do, and I have to answer those and send those rightly. But then what happens? Even on our phones, we continue to scroll and scroll 
and scroll. As if we've wired our mind that this makes us busy and this is valuable. And we think that busy equals important. Second myth is that hurrying will buy us more time. We think that if we hurry, we actually have more time. We're going to buy ourselves more time. You know that's a joke, right? Back in 1994, 72%, according to Gallup, 72% of Americans believed they would be working less in the decades ahead. Back in 1984. Now, fast forward two decades plus, we are working 22% more hours. Technology has not slowed us down. Technology has only sped us up all the more. And here's the point. The busier we get, the emptier we feel. The emptier we feel, the busier we try to get to satisfy the emptiness. And we live in this vicious cycle. And the Christmas story here reminds us of this. This little phrase, there's no place for them in the end. The busyness of Bethlehem was pervading their place. The chambers of our souls begin to be filled with needless things, with stuff that doesn't matter. We find ourselves with unnecessary, insignificant, and meaningless lives, and we miss the Christ of God in our midst, in our lives. And it becomes harder even to slow down. Busy in Bethlehem. The third thing we want to look at for a moment is waiting in Jerusalem. Waiting in Jerusalem. I want to fast forward for a moment to chapter 2, verse 25. Now let me explain. Jesus is born. They then have to go through a process. Eight days later, the law requires that a Jewish boy would be circumcised. And then 30 days after that, there would be a, a time of purification. If you were a firstborn child, your parents would go in and sacrifice on your behalf. And it was called the, the moment of purification. Usually it's after the, the mom recovers a bit. And so it's 40 days after birth, right around 40 days. And we find here that there was a man who had been waiting. Take a look with me at verse 25 of chapter 2. It says, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now think about this. The prophet had prophesied that this Messiah would come and he would be born in Bethlehem. He was waiting. Everybody else going about their daily duties, this man had been waiting. All of Jerusalem was waiting. Just a little side note. Every mom who would get pregnant for the first time wondered if her child was going to be the Messiah. So here we have this man who's waiting and he's been told, take a look at what it says, waiting for the consolation, the coming of the Messiah, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit in the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, by the way, it says he came in, he continually came in to find this child. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God, and he said... Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to you, for your people, Israel. Here was a man of great age, many believe 80, 90, maybe 100 years old, waiting for this moment. Now, everybody was waiting Everybody's waiting for this child to be born. But the reaction of waiting is very different, isn't it? We all wait for something. I don't know about you, but I hate waiting. I, I would rather be in a, in a line that is longer but moving than a line that's shorter and isn't. I don't know if you're like that. I would rather go a longer route in a direction 
and yet it keep moving, even if it's slow, then they take a quicker route and stop. We like to be moving, don't we? We don't like waiting. We want, as long as a line is moving, you ever gone to Cedar Point? I don't mind a line, but it better be moving. And then they put those little signs. It's three and a half hours from this point. It's four hours, and that's supposed to encourage you. It's supposed to encourage you and make you think, oh, I've only got three and a half hours to ride this one stinking ride. It's crazy. It's somehow they play in a mind game with you to make you think you're moving even though you're standing there still. The, there's a challenge in waiting. Why? Because waiting actually can lead to helplessness. When we wait, we think that means we're called to be helpless, that we can't do anything. There's nothing to be done, and that can lead to some reactions. First of all, it can lead to anxious waiting. That leads to angry waiting. We can be anxious about what's happening in our life, and we can get angry about it. We can get frustrated. We can react and respond negatively. Secondly, we can be passively waiting. This is where we grow apathetic. This was many of the Jews, by the way. Many of the Jews knew the prophecy. Many of the Jews, by the way, even knew that he would come in Bethlehem. Micah prophesied that. Yet no one was looking for him. Think about this for a moment. Bethlehem. You would think that if, if, if a woman was pregnant in Bethlehem, everybody would be surrounding saying, is this the Messiah? Why? Because the prophets said they would come to Bethlehem. But they come to Bethlehem and they're so busy they can't pay attention to it. They're waiting, but they're waiting apathetically. They're waiting indifferently. They're waiting on their own. Many of them are just throwing their hands in the air like they just don't care. <laughs> Simeon was waiting, but he was hope-filled. I, I love this. This is hopeful waiting, active waiting. He was coming to the temple every single day. Yeah, it's true. He was told in the spirit that he would not die without seeing the child, but it could be decades before. This is the nature of the scriptures, right? That, that waiting is not incidental to faith. Waiting is actually the DNA of faith. Here is Simeon, and he's waiting. There's a long history of Bible characters waiting. Abraham waited 25 years before God called him out of the wilderness back to deliver the people of Israel. Joseph suffered for 13 years of betrayal, false imprisonment, and abandonment before becoming the leader of Egypt. Moses spent 40 years tending his sheep before God called him to deliver his people. I think of Abraham. I got that wrong. Abraham waited 25 years before God told him he had a son until he had a son. David spent 14 years from the time he was anointed king to when he became king. Here's the point. Waiting is a part of the DNA of belief. Waiting is a part of the Christian journey. For Simeon, he was waiting for this child to be born, but he wasn't waiting by doing nothing. No, he was waiting with active faith. And I love what he says in verse, verse 29 and 30. Lord, you're now letting me depart in peace. Why? For my eyes have seen your salvation. You know what that tells us? He was looking for him. He was looking for Christ. He was looking for the Messiah. His eyes were attentive to what God was doing. See, when we're waiting, we're not waiting by doing nothing. We're waiting by moving to join God where he's moving. I, I, I love the verses that talk about this. Lamentations 3, it says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him. Notice that. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. What does it mean to wait? It means to seek him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Romans 12 gives us this, this great verse, verses 11 and 11, 12. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. By the way, the word hope literally means wait with confident expectation. It means to wait. He, he says we rejoice in waiting. We rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. We're not slothful. We're active in our waiting. Why? Because waiting is a prelude to God's working. 
waiting is a prelude to God's working in our lives. And let me ask you this morning. Again, this is simple. I get that this is not some profound truth, but I want you to think about this. God gives us this Christmas story not just as an historical story, an historical narrative. He gives us a story to give us a glimpse of life. Yes, Jesus' purpose was to seek and save that which is lost. His name alone, Jesus, means he saves. The Lord is salvation. That's what it means. He is salvation. This is true. But, but it's not just that he saves us, it's that he gives us a pattern of life. Maybe you're here this morning, and in this season of Christmas, you're oblivious. You're oblivious to God's work. You're oblivious to what God is doing in your life. You're, you're, just, you're not even paying attention. And could it be that God is saying, I want to awaken the oblivious? I want to awaken those who are unaware. I want you to see what I'm doing in your life. I want you to see the salvation of the Lord. And maybe this Christmas, it's time to stop and listen to his voice. It's time to stop and receive his gift, the gift of salvation that came, comes through his son. And you're here, and you just, you're walking around life, and you're just unaware. You're unaware of what God is doing. And right now, you're here. You're, you're not here by accident. You're here by intentionality by God. And today would be the day of your salvation. Today would be the day where God is going to awaken your heart, turn your eyes to himself, and show you that God came in the flesh to save you. Are you oblivious, unaware? Stop. Listen to God calling in you, working in you. Pay attention to what he's doing. Maybe you're here and you're just overwhelmed in busyness. Man, you're just busy, busy, busy. You're trying to prepare for this holiday. And then at the end, you keep thinking, right, I think this, right, I'm going to get through Christmas and then I'm going to rest. But what happens? Then it's the new year. And another year passes. I think I'm going to enjoy it more next year. I'm going to enjoy it more. I'm going to stress out less and enjoy Christ more. And can I tell you, in our busyness, we leave no room in our lives for God to surprise us. Listen, if you leave no room in your life for God to surprise you, Maybe it's actually not God you're worshiping. Think about that. If you don't leave any room in your life, in the waiting moments, in the seasons of busyness, if you're not, if you're not leaving any room for God just to surprise you with something, to surprise you with his goodness, his faithfulness, to work in your life, you're probably not really looking for God. And so he's saying, listen, just pause. Hit the pause button on life. Take this Christmas season and focus on the goodness of it. Think about the fact that God came for you. Uh, maybe you're here and you're waiting. You're, you're waiting and you're wondering, is God going to come through? And you're in this Christmas season, you're like, God, of all the moments you came, could you come in this situation? Could you come in this circumstances? Let me ask you this. Do, do your daily habits, habits prove or disprove your dependency upon God? See, in our seasons of waiting, our daily habits are going to show us whether and prove to us whether we actually depend on God or not. And so let me ask you, are you seeking his face? Are you in the word? Are you praying? Are you serving? I've met many people. I talked to somebody just the other day, and they're walking through a, a, a grave situation, and yet they're serving. They were serving at our adopted child. They were serving at our city center, and they said to me, they said, Dave, I can't tell you how much serving has helped me focus on what matters. In the midst of a difficult situation, a situation they may not even get out of, they're saying, Dave, I don't know what to do, but I'm serving God. And in the service of God, what's happening? They're enduring. They're waiting well. So maybe for you, it's getting involved. It's serving. It's connected to the spiritual gifts that God's called to you. It's called to wait actively. 
not, not waiting just quietly, but also waiting actively, waiting openly. You say, God, use me. Use me in this situation. W- would you stand with me as we pray across every campus? Would you just stand with me? If you're here with us this morning and maybe you don't know Christ, maybe you've been oblivious to God's work and right now he, he's, he's awakening the oblivious and he's bringing awareness to you. We have some people at Next Steps that would love to talk with you. At every campus, love to talk with you, pray with you. You're here, maybe you're wrapped in the busyness. Can we just hit the pause button? Can we just set aside the, the chaos and confusion that this season brings and just pause and say, you alone are worthy. You alone are the one I adore. You alone are the one that matters to me. Maybe you're here and you're waiting and God is saying, no, 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 don't wait. Don't wait passively. Don't wait anxiously. Wait actively. Serve. Look. Have your eyes set on the one coming to work in your life. God, I thank you for your word. God, I confess to you I don't wait well. I confess to you that I get wrapped in busyness. I confess to you that at times I can be oblivious to your work because my, my head is down, nose to the grind. And God, you, you, this Christmas season, Lord, the story of Christmas is not just history. It is a story of our lives. That God, just like the homeowner, Lord, we don't leave room for you. Uh, God, just like Rome, we can be oblivious to your workings. And just like uh, the people of Israel, many of them, they were waiting for the Messiah, but they weren't looking for the Messiah. And God, they were waiting in passiveness. They were waiting in, in anxiety, but they weren't waiting actively like Simeon. And so God, I pray that you would help us to wait well. And that Christmas is a reminder that you came. And if you came, you're coming again that you will keep your word, that you are faithful to do it, that you came to this earth, you, the God of the universe, unveiled yourself behind human flesh, went to a cross for us, walked out of a grave for us, and you promised to come again for us. And so, God, our waiting is not without hope. Our waiting is confident expectation. So we love you and thank you. Oh, come, let us adore you, O Christ. In your name, Jesus. Amen. We sing this together. Come, let us adore Him. Oh.